Welcome to Beyond the Page, a podcast from People's World. I'm Matt Bernico. And I'm Chauncey K. Robinson. Beyond the Page is the podcast companion to People's World. Beyond the Page brings you in-depth interviews with journalists and activists on the most pressing stories on progressive politics, labor, and the struggle for socialism in the United States. This week, we've got stories from C.J. Atkins, who is the managing editor at People's World on anti-communism and the election in Florida. And then we have Al Neal, who is an associate editor at People's World, with some perspective on the ongoing lawsuits from the Trump administration. Today, we're joined by C.J. Atkins. He is a managing editor at People's World. Uh, C.J., thanks for joining us. Hello, Matt, Chauncey. Thanks for the invitation to be on the show. Well, let's get right into it. Uh, right after the election, you published a really interesting article titled Trump's anti-communism helped him win Florida. So Trump's victory in Florida and in other geographies led many liberal commentators to make some uh, rather racist assumptions about, uh, quote, Latino voters, though your article provides some important nuance on that topic. And I think it's really helpful. Um, so despite what the pundits might think, Latino voters aren't just a, a big monolith of people, right? <laughs> they have some texture to them and to assume otherwise isn't isn't very good journalism. So uh, the way that Cuban Americans cast their vote is like, you know, different from uh, the motivations that might have uh, been with Mexican Americans as they cast their votes or something. Can you give us a big overview about what's going on with the Cuban American voters in Florida? Yeah, you know, I think your question has really sort of set the context for how this this has to be understood. On election night and especially the morning after, we saw a lot of the news agencies really scrambling to try to interpret exit poll data and and quickly give an explanation for why this state went one way, another state went a different way. And we saw this with uh, Latino voters, but also black voters in some places where there was a rush to say that, uh, you know, the Latino uh, turnout really disappointed Democrats. Uh, but I think to really get a handle on the, the political dynamics and the voting habits of the Cuban-American community in South Florida, since that's the state that we're looking at here, uh, you can't really just look at the politics of this election or even the particular issues that the Republican or the Democratic parties are putting forward in their platforms at this moment. And that's because when it comes to Cuban-Americans in Florida, for a sizable chunk of them, every U.S. election, to a certain extent, is still about the political issues of the 1960s. The, the Cuban diaspora community in Florida is one where the political viewpoints of the first big wave of migrants really crystallized and sort of became the dominant one across generations and, and down through the decades. And the event around which uh, Cuban American political life revolves is of course the Cuban revolution, <clears throat> excuse me, which started in 1959. Now, before Fidel Castro and, and the rebel army of socialists and independence fighters overthrew the dictatorship there of Fulgencio Batista in 59, Cuba was basically a semi-colony of the United States. Huge pieces of the country's industry, 70% uh, of its land and resources were owned or controlled by major U.S. corporations. And domestically within Cuba, there was a sizable comprador elite, uh, a group which abetted and benefited from what really amounted to U.S. plunder of their own island. Now, there was also a big domestic landowner class who were very closely tied to the military dictatorship there. They held control of the country's sugar plantations, and sugar was and still is one of Cuba's uh, single biggest products. Now, Batista and his government was really a tool of the U.S. imperial uh, uh, goal of dominating the Caribbean during the Cold War. 
But after the revolution there, what we saw was the new socialist government in Cuba quickly moved against some of these big landowners in the, in the previous ruling class and against foreign capital. Uh, the Castro government nationalized farmland, gave it back to farmers. They overturned a lot of anti-labor laws and redirected public resources toward the health, education, and housing needs of, of the majority of people there. Now, the class of Cubans who, who had you know, enjoyed privileged positions in the past under the old dictatorship, well, they quickly saw their roles diminished. And a lot of them packed their bags and took what wealth they could and headed for Miami, 90 miles away. Now, they were welcomed by a U.S. government, which was engaged at the time in an effort to kill off this, this sort of new bastion of socialism, which was just, just off its coast. So this, this first wave of Cuban migrants really established themselves in South Florida and in the politics of that state. And they cemented what turned out to be a, a reactionary, anti-socialist, anti-communist politics for their whole community. And even though subsequent waves of Cuban migrants have made the community a more diverse uh, one in terms of, of class and social status, uh, there's really a certain institutional, institutionalization of that first wave of right-wing politics. It's become permanent. And uh, it, it became a community that has long backed Republicans because the Republicans were perceived, usually rightly so, as being more aggressive toward the communist-led government in Havana. It's really a historical grudge, I think, that's been handed down generation to generation. And, uh, you know, for a few years, there, there was this sort of thought that maybe younger generations of Cuban-Americans were becoming less right-wing. But the data, unfortunately, really isn't bearing that out. Um, for instance, Cubans who have arrived in the U.S. since 2010, so just over the past decade, uh, they've actually registered Republican at around 75, 76 percent, so even higher than some of the generations that came before them. So is there hope? Is there hope for like ever getting them? Well, uh, you know, it's it's a complicated story. I think for a few years there was uh, the view that there was hope and that this was a, a community that was shifting in its politics. But it seems that Trump and the GOP knew something that all the pundits did not. Uh, and that is in, in Little Havana, in Miami, the Cold War never really ended. And mm -hmm. so Trump and the GOP calibrated their anti-communist appeals to win that support. And at least so far, it seems like it worked. You know, something that, you know, sticks out about your article is the way that the U.S. blockade against Cuba plays into the story. If you follow the politics surrounding Cuba and the U.S., this might seem obvious, right? But for the uninitiated, what's happening there? Why does persecuting Cuba through sanctions make Trump popular with Cuban-Americans? Yeah, it doesn't seem like it would be something that makes sense at first, right? Uh, the, the, the immigrant community cheering for the U.S. government to to be even tougher on their home country. Um, but the, the economic war against Cuba is part of this same historic grudge of U.S. imperialism and, and the former Cuban ruling class against the Cuban Revolution. Started out as an embargo on Cuban sugar uh, back in the, in the early 60s, and then it expanded to really a full-blown economic blockade, complete with failed invasions such as Bay of Pigs, terrorist attacks on Cuban aircraft, uh, bombings of hotels, poisoning crops. And, and there's, of course, all the tales of the hundreds of, of assassination attempts against Castro and, and other Cuban leaders. So keeping Cuba's government as, as a permanent in, enemy really served many purposes. It was a way in the early days for the U.S. government to be anti-Soviet during the Cold War. 
But even whenever Cuba's socialist government stuck around after the other communist uh, uh, governments in the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe uh, faded away, the U.S. actually stepped up its economic war against Cuba to try to finish off socialism there, you know, making the restrictions even, even tighter and tighter on Cuban trade and trying to shut it off from the rest of the world. So for Republicans, this became a very powerful weapon in, in domestic U.S. politics. Whenever former President Barack Obama uh, restored diplomatic relations with Havana and, and started easing some of the travel restrictions and other aspects of the blockade, this was the time when a lot of uh, Cuba watchers were saying, oh, the page is turning. The younger Cuban Americans are giving up on the failed blockade. Uh, but as I mentioned, it doesn't look like it's, it's turning out that way. And that conclusion might have been premature. And I think Trump and the Republicans, uh, they, they, they had targeted research, which showed that the overthrow of the socialist government in Cuba was still a winning policy among certain segment of voters. And they pushed it really hard in this election. Uh, they, they knew how to use the resentment of younger Cubans who suffered through the 90s and the 2000s whenever the U.S. tightened the blockade. They knew how to make that community blame their situation on Cuba's government rather than on the blockade itself. Uh, and so they're, they're reaping the, the rewards from that, unfortunately. What's interesting is that, you know, there's this whole, I think, cottage industry around anti-Cuban um, propaganda stories in the United States, too, especially in, in Miami. Right. Right? Like, these sentiments aren't coming out of nowhere. They're they're cultivated, and uh, the government spends a lot of time and energy in uh, making sure that story is like clear and the narrative is, is out there. Well, um, I think everything going on with Cuban Americans and how that how they, you know the anti communism um, pushed by the the U.S. government plays into the, the story of voting is really fascinating and, and pretty important to understanding like what that voting block means and, and how it shook out the way it did. Um, but I, I'd be interested to hear about you know what you think about the. Uh, the, the trend of anti-communism or anti-socialism more broadly in this election, because we're kind of starting to see it shake out in different ways. So um, already, you know, even uh, just a week out from the election, we're already seeing a, a pretty big trend of the Democrats punching to the left after the election. Um, you know, they're they're um, they're making jabs at progressives they're making jabs at uh, socialists and, and other folks, too. So do you think that that's somehow related to the trend of like latent anti-communism in the United States? Or do you think that there's something more nuanced going on there? Uh, yeah, uh, democratic factionalism. Well, you know, I think the, the, the fights that we're seeing break out are related to several different factors. But anti-communism is, is certainly a big one. It's pretty significant. Um, it's important, I think, to look at the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, for that matter, as really a major arena of struggle. You know, the rules of the two U.S. two-party system, when you look at it, um, they make for some pretty strange bedfellows. They force... Uh, different kind of class, social, and political forces to, to really be in the same party together, which in another country, you'd probably have three, four, or five you know, separate parties uh, representing different parts of the, uh, the ideological spectrum. Um, but for instance, you know, in, the, in what we've seen break out in just these last few days, you have someone like Represil, uh, Representative Abigail Spanberger of Virginia. Now, she's the Democrat who was first out of the gate in blaming Democratic House uh, progressives and, and those on the left saying that uh, they're really the reason we lost House seats, we being the Democratic Party. Um, mm. You know, she came out saying that the Democratic Party should never, ever utter the word socialist or socialism again. Now, someone like Spanberger and, and those uh, who, are, who are in the caucus with her, they come from the liberal wing of the U.S. foreign policy and intelligence establishment. 
you know, she was a CIA officer. She also worked in the very lucrative private education consulting sector uh, before coming to Congress. So figures like this are anti-Trump Democrats, but they're not progressives, and, and it really shows. So, but then within the same Democratic Party, you have someone like Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who, uh, you know, has sort of taken up the mantle of, of pushing back on this anti-socialist, anti-communist message that, that some in the Democratic Party are pushing. So this is a working class, uh, you know, representative who comes from a, a different kind of background in, in New York, um, calls herself a socialist. And I think she's correctly pointing out that, you know, the, the, the claims that Spanberger and others are making have really very little evidence to back them up in, in large areas of the country. She correctly points out that there are zero or almost zero cases of Democrats who ran on Medicare for All or Green New Deal losing their seats. Those people did not lose. So it wasn't a socialist or a progressive message that was losing seats in Congress in those, those districts. Instead, it was the centrist Democrats in the swing districts uh, who came up short in the end. That's where the House Democrats actually saw the biggest losses for their caucus. Try to look at the whole picture. I think both of them have some points. You know, I come from Arkansas, and I can tell you that uh, we saw many races with uh, Democrats losing to, to Republicans in those swing uh, seats in the 2000s and 2010s especially. And in those places, anti-communism uh, does have an appeal. You know, and progressive Democrats at the national level do get villainized and and used as a wedge against local candidates. So maybe Spanberger has some some point there, but there are many other districts where uh, an anti-communist, anti-working class message is not going to play well and it's not going to win votes. I, I think that's right, though, especially given the example we saw in the larger Florida race. Floridans also voted to pass a, uh, an, a constitutional amendment that would raise the minimum wage in Florida to $15 an hour. I think it's really interesting because um, more people came out to vote for that than, than they did vote for the president even, right? Right. <laughs> so, the, you know, Florida lost... Um, Biden lost Florida, but it's still um, Floridians seem to support this like moderately progressive uh, constitutional amendments. People like Spanberger and other Democrats who, who want to punch left, it's, it doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense to me. Um, it, it seems like people are willing to vote for things that help the working class and help make their lives better. But, um, you know, when Democrats distance themselves from it, it seems like it hurts them more than helps them. Uh, I think you've really hit on an important point, And that's really the thing about anti-communism. Anytime the Democrats accept its premise, they get pulled down this slippery slope that eventually comes back to bite them. You know, anytime there's anti-communism, usually anti-worker policies and racism are following very closely behind. And I think Biden and some Florida Democrats stepped into that a bit, uh, into that trap, whenever they tried to counter Republican anti-communism by saying that they would actually be better at uh, executing the economic war against Cuba, or that Trump wasn't doing enough to overthrow the socialist government in, in Venezuela. But in the end, that kind of approach doesn't help Democrats. Uh, yes, the Democrats still managed to carry Miami-Dade County, but they were down 10 points from Clinton. At the same time, as you pointed out, that the minimum wage uh, uh, measure won pretty solid support in that county. So it's it's been suggested, and I think it's true, that uh, the Democrats might have done even better in Florida. Who knows if they could have captured the state? It was maybe uphill. But I think they would have done better if they'd focused more on winning black votes, Puerto Rican votes, and other working class votes in that state. 
than trying to play the GOP's anti-communist game. Because if you're attempting to outdo the right wing on anti-communism, you're always going to come up short. Yeah, you're going to lose. Exactly. <laughs> it's very clear. Awesome. CJ, thank you so much for joining us and, and giving us your analysis on the situation. It's really helpful to, to get our brains around just what happened in Florida and other places across the country. So thanks so much for your work. Okay. I'm glad you had me on. I hope that was helpful. Thanks. Thank you. Back with us, we have Al Neal, who is an associate editor at People's World. And Al has written some really cool articles regarding the various, numerous, because there's plenty of lawsuits when it comes to what the GOP has been doing to suppress the vote and the election results. Hey, Al. Good morning. Glad to be back. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks for being here. I'm sure you're really busy with everything you've been, you know, keeping up on. You have so many articles with every new... Uh, situation because there's been many in the uh, on November 3rd and after I'm sure there's going to be many more that you'll be writing on. No, absolutely. It's, uh, you know, like I, I've mentioned a few times in, in uh, previous coverage, it's uh, it's a flurry of lawsuits, but they're um, they're frivolous lawsuits. Yeah, because in one of your recent articles, the frivolous lawsuits of a sore loser. I really love that title. Um, you, it's a good title. Yes. Um, you mentioned Donald Trump's many lawsuits contesting the presidential election results. Can you explain Trump's strategy here? And if voters have anything to worry about when it comes to his ability to influence the election outcome? You know, there's been talk of Trump wanting to take it to the Supreme Court and get that involved. Is there a chance of that? So where to begin? Right, so Trump's strategy from the outset was always how do we use the courts to gum up the electoral process? How do we you know, undermine democracy through the courts? I mean, we've seen after four years of the disastrous presidency and also in Trump's personal life as you know, a failed businessman that lawsuits are his go-to strategy because it takes time because the courts move slow. In this case, the GOP and Trump were very much looking at the 2000 Florida recount uh, between George W. Bush and Al Gore, which did go to the Supreme Court and which, again, the court ruled and George W. Bush became president, despite the fact that, you know, the popular vote was going to go was going to Gore and it was a razor thin margin. So it was a similar strategy because from the outset, everyone kind of sort of had this feeling that it was going to be a very close race. So, you know, and now that we had the pandemic and we had all of the other uh, issues that we had to deal with, you know, we had to take a look at the fundamental process of our elections and the fact that in a pandemic, how do we allow people to exercise their civil rights while at the same time protecting their health? And as we have seen, this president has no regard for any human life. You know, we have seen over 200,000 deaths because of COVID. So, you know, it makes sense that since we allow states to determine the rules of their elections, that they can go forward. So again, we saw mail-in ballot and absentee ballots being cast in historic numbers. And this, again, it's not new. Military members overseas, folks who are expats who are living in other countries have done this for years. Moving forward, Trump's strategy has been how do we undermine the credibility of the process. So I call these lawsuits frivolous because they don't actually have any legal standing. There is no real margin of litigation. What it's doing is it's allowing talking points to kind of sort of 
infect and, and create this toxicity within the within voters, which we've already seen through the last four years. You know, we saw uh, on election day in Michigan and in Georgia two lawsuits claiming all these instances of fraud and that they weren't being afforded the rights to you know view all the ballot counting. And within hours, those lawsuits were dismissed. And in fact, uh, one of the state judges had to remind the Trump campaign that it does have the right to take punitive measures for uh, individuals filing frivolous lawsuits as a way to slow things down, to give them more time. Uh, so really, that's what it's come down to, is that none of these lawsuits have any real standing. You can talk to any legal expert in the field, and they'll say, you know what? There's nothing there. You don't have proof that there was fraud. There is no malfeasance. And as far as the Supreme Court, you know, it's amazing that a sitting president has gone on stage and said that he's glad that they put in another conservative justice because now they'll be able to, you know, in essentially rule in his favor. But again, this isn't 2000. Joe Biden's victory, uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris's victory does not rest on just one state. They took several swing states. So unlike 2000, where it was just one state of Florida that could have flipped it, the closest state that could do that would be Pennsylvania. But again, the margin of votes that they're contesting wouldn't change the outcome of the election one way or another. So again, it's highly unlikely that the Supreme Court would take this. So on the one hand, that seems like kind of good news that maybe the uh, the lawsuits, as you say, are frivolous and we don't need to worry about them so much. But I guess what seems uh, like bad news is that this will sort of stoke fires with Trump's base. How do you think that will will um, play out? You know, you mentioned that these do create talking points for Republicans. Um, it, you know, a group of people who are already oftentimes uh, prone to feeling uh, persecuted. I, I don't know. Do you think this will uh, fan the fan the flames? You know, unfortunately. That's absolutely right. That's exactly what's going to happen. You know, we've already seen this extreme partisan divide the last four years, and it culminated in this last year of the election cycle. Uh, and what we have seen from the GOP and from the Trump campaign is that this is a really good entry point to capture the public narrative around voting and to give people something to be angry. At. You know, since election night and since the Trump campaign filed all those lawsuits along with state GOPs and the national GOP, we have seen a ton of emails going out to supporters asking for their help to protect democracy and to ensure every legal vote, you know, is counted and to be part of Trump's, you know, election integrity defense team, which I think close to what they actually called it. So what they're doing is they are creating an opportunity to continue to push people to react indignantly and to react in a way that, you know, would make it hard to create any sort of unity under the new administration once they're, you know, sworn in and inaugurated. We also see that this works to the GOP's benefit because it allows them to try to get more votes. Uh, I'm going to point out in Georgia, we have two runoff elections for a Senate seat that could flip blue. So this allows them to continue to hold rallies and to continue to use Trump as their rallying cry to try to get those uh, those two seats, you know, back and keep them, it can continue to have control of the Senate and continue to then, you know, pretty much gunk up all the works uh, that you know the House is doing, and then that goes to the Senate, and then goes, you know, would go to a more progressive administration. So again, this is all 
pretty much just a continuation of Trump's campaign. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Well, um, regardless of whether he succeeds in his bid to undermine the election results, uh, I mean, it remains to be seen what will happen there. Um, we still have 70 days with this guy in office. Uh, what should working people be concerned with regarding, you know, that uh, span of time? Uh, you know, like what can people do to maybe combat uh, the sort of tensions at play here? You know, it's uh, it's a little unnerving. You know, 70 days left of a lame duck president, especially an unhinged lame duck president. Uh, you know, as we've already seen, he fired his um, the defense secretary. Uh, I'm sure there's going to be a flurry of other terminations. You know, we've seen him order his administration to fire anyone who mentions looking for a new job come January 2021. Wow. Uh, yes. <laughs> this, this was just reported this morning. Uh, uh, folks close to the administration and aides uh, brought up the fact that they were, they're under an edict that they cannot say that they're looking for another job because they'll just get fired just right then and there. So folks should be concerned in the sense that there's going to be a lot of scary things happening. You know, Trump is going to lash out. There's probably going to be a ton of executive orders. We're going to try to see a whole shakeup rise to pad his way into accepting a loss without actually accepting a loss, right? He's looking for an off-ramp, something that'll make him leave with whatever weird dignity he thinks he's going to leave with. Now, in regards to what folks can do, you know, we saw a massive uprising in the streets to protect the vote. Now we need to ensure that we protect the vote certification, that democracy survive. Um, you know, so folks need to be out in the streets. They need to be engaging with other people. They need to be talking to their family members. And at the same time, folks need to start thinking about what they would like to do politically. You know, we have seen the system almost fail. And we have seen elected officials who have really no concept of what average working people go through. The working class really has representation, and it all starts locally. You know, so I would encourage anyone to get involved with their local democratic clubs, with their, you know, run for local office. You know, even if it's a school board, you know, some type of voice that reflects the community that they are representing. So we have that, um, and again, to just continue to find points of entry to ensure that their voices are heard. You know, again, all this is local. And if we want to see real electoral change and how we do our voting process, we need to start locally. I'm going to shout out St. Louis. You know, we passed uh, ranked voting. You know, we are taking away that, that partisan divide and allowing people to run for office because, you know, on their credibility and their morals and their values. And I think that's something that we really need to think about uh, moving forward past this, uh, this election cycle. You talk about the idea of ranked voting, which, of course, duh, makes sense. And, you know, other maneuvers and what working people can do. Is there anything like are there other specific things that uh, can be done for the future to ensure that the you know, that these suppressive maneuvers that Trump and the GOP did, you know, before the elections, during the elections or trying to do after the election this year? that can ensure that this won't happen again? You know, what can people advocate for in terms of the way the law works? Who, who, who do they call? What do they, what do they call for their, their representatives to do? Oh, I mean, that's a, it's a hefty question. Um, I mean, what folks can do, I mean, of course they can 
do uh, initiative petitions, they can call on that. You know, um, one thing I would encourage uh, folks to look into is there is a, a book called Engines of Liberty by the by David Cole, the director of the uh, American Civil Liberties Union. And what it does is it lays out the framework of how individuals at the local level began filing their own lawsuits in order to bring it up to the Supreme Court level to make that change. You know, in this book, it talks a lot about um, the fight to uh, legalize uh, gay marriage and LGBTQIA rights. And all of that started at the local, the hyper local level. So I think folks need to start looking at what issues they could challenge in court that would then put it into the public spotlight because it's a three prong approach. It has to be in the public spotlight. The narrative has to be there. You have to fight for it in the courts because as we've seen, the courts have been litigating more and more of our, of our laws um, under this administration. And we'll probably see that from the GOP moving forward and also organizing the boots on the ground, the flooding your local representative, state elected officials, you know, uh, senators, uh, House of Representatives with letter campaigns, you know, taking over their offices, reminding them that their job is working for the people. This isn't about, you know, their own aspirations. This is about what is good for working people. And they need to be reminded that we have the right to fire them. And I think that's something that can only be done is if we continue this mass movement and this mass building of a coalition of working people saying this isn't working for us and we're going to hold you to account because every two years we're going to vote you out if we need to and put someone else in same every four years in the Senate. And I think that is key is to remind elected officials who put them into power in the first place and that that power can be taken away despite what they think. Al, thanks so much. That's such a good word um, to give some good direction, inspiration for future organizing. Um, I appreciate that so much. Um, well, thanks for joining us. Uh, it was uh, great to have you on again. Yeah, thanks, Al. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Beyond the Page. If you like what you heard, follow People's World on social media. And remember, we take sides. Yours.